You ever had a moment or a season in your life where you felt like God had forsaken you or had turned his back on you? Where he felt distant or perhaps even disinterested? Maybe it was when you were young in the faith and so you didn't understand the purpose and how God uses trials to move towards us. Or maybe it just happened uh, this weekend. And if you're like me, these moments happen most often when our back's against the wall, we can't find a way out, we can't find a relief uh, to our suffering, or we're maybe we're lowest point, maybe experiencing some kind of relational pain or emotional pain or even uh, physical pain. I remember a young adult came in our office uh, several years ago and was meeting with uh, one of our pastors, and afterwards he kind of debriefed, and I said, hey, what was that meeting about and how'd the meeting go? And he said, well, it was very surprising, and uh, he said the came in, they said, can I just be brutally honest with you is what this young adult said. And he said, of course. And they said, I just feel like God is crapping on me. Only they did not say that word. They said a different word in the pastor's office. So clearly, uh, they were in raw state emotionally. And uh, what they were declaring is that even though it's not theologically true, because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There are moments where it feels as if that verse isn't true. That life has become so hard that God is out to get us. God is punishing us in a punitive, not redemptive way. Or at the very uh, best, God has uh, abandoned us. He's distant from us. Uh, we've sold dozens, maybe hundreds at this point of a devotional written by Paul Tripp uh, called New Morning mercies. And the devotion for this Thursday, which is the day the final draft of the sermon gets written every single week, had this gold in it. I quote, he said, love the Bible's description of life in a fallen world is accurate and familiar. Psalm 90 is one of the most honest and descriptive psalms. How's this for honesty? The years of our life are 70 or even the reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're gone soon. And we fly away. And what the psalmist is saying here, Trip writes, is your life will be short and will be marked by difficulty. Is that not an encouraging word this morning? He said, but it's true. We live in a fallen world that itself groans waiting for redemption. We live with flawed people who think and say and do wrong things. We live in a place where corruption, immorality, injustice, and disease still live and do their Ugly work. We live in an environment that does not function according to God's original design. Every day is marked by little troubles, and big troubles often knock at the door. He says, in all of this, you are tempted to feel alone, forsaken, poor, and unable. In all of this, you are tempted to wonder whether God exists, let alone if he hears or cares. We'll turn with you to Matthew chapter 27 for the final message in our Red Letter Prayer series. And I don't know about you, but I've... Walking through the series, I've been encouraged to model and learn how Jesus prayed. I've been challenged to line up the heart of my prayers up with his uh, throughout all of this. And today's prayer, the final one in this series, is possibly the most emphatic and even some have argued the most controversial of all the prayers that Jesus prayed. Matthew chapter 27, we're just going to look this morning at verses 45 through verse 51. It says, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. 
And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Many theologians and commentators have called this passage the Mount Everest of the Christian faith. And so let me kind of help set the stage for what's going on here as we drop in near the end of the Gospel of Matthew. It's about 3 p.m. or the ninth hour to be exact. And so Jesus at this point had been hanging on the cross uh, for quite some time. Uh, the way that Jewish people would track time was sun up to sun down, and the sun usually rose about 6 a.m. And so if you're doing the math from uh, the first hour, you would see this. The sixth hour would be noon, and the ninth hour is about 3 p.m. And so Jesus has been hanging on the cross in the last moments for his death. He's been at this point humiliated. He's been abandoned. He's been beaten severely. He's literally gasping for breath. And so his prayers are brief but powerful because so much of the Christian storyline, so much of the message of redemption plays out in this moment in Jesus' final prayer. And so I want to invite you into this moment with Jesus here in this final prayer. Now, there's a little disclaimer now, this morning. Number one, we're going to approach the text and the topic a little different this morning than we we normally would. So here's what I mean by that. First off, there's only one point this morning in the sermon, all right? So uh, let not your hearts be troubled. You are not getting out early. So write that down, okay? And the second thing that's a little different is this. Normally we teach through and here's some interpretation, here's some application, that kind of stuff. But, but this, uh, this morning we're going to approach a little different. We're going to be heavy on the teaching on the front end, heavy on the theology. And then we're going to save a lot of the application for the end, uh, which is not, not what we normally do. Now, what some of you heard is this. I can go to sleep for about 20 minutes and wake up, right? Because let's just be honest. Everyone's favorite part of the sermonic supper is dessert. And in preaching, uh, the dessert is application. That's what everyone wants. And so we're going to weed through the little theology uh, a little heavier on the front end this morning. Uh, but it's going to be important. Here's why. Here's what we tell you all the time. That no matter how helpful or practical the application seems to be or feels to be or sounds to be, if it's built on bad theology, then when you go to lean on it, it will crumble. It will let you down when you need it the most, all right? So, if you've got your big boy pants and your big girl pants on this morning, on the count of three, would you just shout out, bring it on, all right? You ready? One, two, three. That's a little better than I thought. There's some Pentecostals mixed in amongst us this morning. I'm grateful for it. The dictionary defines atonement in the following way. Atonement's a concept of a person taking action to correct, listen to this, previous wrongdoing on their part, either through direct action to undo the consequences of that act, or equivalent action to do good for others, or some expression of feelings of remorse. So that's the dictionary, Webster's definition of atonement. But here's what's so incredible about the atonement of Jesus Christ is that the person taking action to correct the wrongdoing is not the one guilty of the wrongdoing. It was a substitutionary atonement. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Another translation reads it this way, For God made Christ who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we can become right with God through Jesus Christ. And this is not a literal translation, but I love the Living Bible paraphrase of this same verse. Listen to it. 
For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then, in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. And so no matter which version of that you like, the, all of them are pointing to the same simple reality and truth, which is powerful, which is this, is that Jesus was forsaken so that we would never have to be. In this passage, listen, make no mistake about what's happening. God is abandoning or deserting Jesus in a very real, relational way. Now, this doesn't mean that the God and Son are no longer one. This is not eternal separation, but in a very real sense, God is abandoning his son relationally on the cross that day. Several years ago, there was some research that came out that stated uh, most Americans' view of God, when they surveyed them, it was a lot closer to that of Santa Claus than it was the God of the Bible. There's a huge appetite in culture for a God of love and a God of mercy and a God of uh, grace, but there's a little appetite for a God of holiness or a God of justice or certainly a, a God of wrath. To quote the great theologian Ricky Bobby, uh, we love eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus, but we're a little uneasy with a guy flipping over tables in the temple. And some of you are like, I don't know who that theologian is. Listen, you're not going to heaven if you don't know who that is, all right? Uh, one writer said this. He said, hey, in an effort to rebrand and remarket Jesus, we've knocked all the teeth out of the Lion of Judah. And because that's such a popular view of God in the culture, there's a temptation to hear these truths about God turning his back on Jesus and to, to push back and say, that doesn't sound like the God that I worship. God would never do that. He would never abandon Jesus relationally. And so let's take a deeper look at what's going on here and let's organize our thoughts around three kind of words to help us understand what's happening here. So three words, uh, predestination, prophecy, and uh, proper and uh, I can't help it, I'm a pastor, I even speak to my kids in alliterated terms, all right? But hopefully that'll help you remember that. Predestination, prophecy, and proper. And so uh, when it comes to predestination, I, I joked with you last week, I said, hey, if you believe deeply in predestination, you're, you're Presbyterian. If you don't believe in it at all, you're Pentecostal. If the whole conversation makes you nervous, you're a Baptist, am I right? Like, I don't know what that is, I don't, it makes me nervous, I don't know if it's good, I don't know if it's bad, but here's the reality. Listen, it is a word that is in the Bible and it speaks to the predetermined plan of God. And so when we look at the, the atonement here, and God abandoning Christ here on the cross in a real relational way, listen, here's what I want you to understand about the predestined plan. This is not a knee-jerk reaction. The atonement was not God's plan God didn't get to a point in history and, and look down. Listen, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and they're hiding, listen, God didn't look down from heaven and go, man, I didn't see that one happening, right? This is the predetermined God's sovereign plan and his foreknowledge. He knew exactly. The Bible says even before the foundations of the world, the plan was to put Jesus as the only way to save all of humanity. And so God knew there would come a Great cost, and here's Jesus crying out this prayer of agony. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 27 through 28 about the predestined plan of God. Listen to this. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do, listen to this, whatever your hand, your plan, had predestined to take place. 
And so Luke, the human author here uh, that God is working through in the book of Acts, is mentioning some very specific names and some very specific groups of people that would play out and kill Jesus. And so he references Herod and Pilate. And guess what? That's exactly uh, what played out. He talks about a mob of ruthless Gentiles. And guess what? That's exactly what played out. He, verse 28, says that God had predestined all of this to happen according to his hand and his predestined plan. And so when we think of the atonement of Jesus Christ, the first word is say, hey, this is predestined. This is part of the plan of God to redeem the world to himself. But the second word is it's also prophesied. Now, when we talk about uh, prophecy in the Bible, it can mean one of two things. Uh, Sometimes it means foretelling the future. So we think of the Old Testament prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, those kinds of people. And often, though, in the New Testament, when it talks about prophecy, it's not foretelling, it's forthtelling. Uh, A person who has the spiritual gift of prophecy is a person who doesn't mind to share hard, black and white, uh, hard-to-hear truths sometimes. Let's just be honest. It's the person we avoid in church. Amen? (laughs) That's right. But here, when we talk about prophecy, we're not talking about foretelling the sense of that spiritual gift. We're talking about foretelling the prediction of Jesus Christ. One writer said this. He said, the Bible, there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus from multiple authors in various time periods over across all kinds of covenants. In fact, he says there are at least 300 prophecies fulfilled while Jesus was on the earth and many of them connected to his death and all of them played out exactly as God intended. Listen, that's astounding. Psalm 22, for example, one commentator writes, he said Psalm 22 contains more details about the physical aspects of the crucifixion than all the other gospels combined. Listen to Psalm 22. It says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, which is baked clay. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now listen, when you get to the Gospels... Is that not exactly what happened and played out in the death of Jesus? When they pierced his side, water came pouring out, the psalm indicates in John 19. His bones were literally out of joint. Often to get a person in a place of crucifixion, they would uh, twist their body in such ways that they literally become disjointed on the cross. John 19, 28, Jesus said, I thirst. And the Psalm 22 references the people who encircle around Jesus. And here in Matthew 27, we see those same people scorning and mocking the King of Kings here at the atonement. But not only was his death predestined, not only was it an act of prophecy, it was proper. Now listen, I know the cultural connotation of the word proper means something is appropriate. And when we think of an innocent person dying on behalf of someone else for something he wasn't guilty for, it doesn't seem appropriate to us at all. So what do we mean by that? Well, listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he whom, for whom by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what's he saying here, the writer of Hebrews? He's saying it's fitting that God whom by all things exist should make the founder of salvation, Jesus, 
perfect through what? Through suffering. And so what he's saying is this. There was no other way that sin could be atoned for. Just like a lamb had to be led to the slaughter, listen, so did Jesus for the sins of the world. And so what he's saying here is, yes, this is an appropriate in the sense this is an innocent man giving his life, paying the penalty for others who are guilty, but he's saying for the scriptures to be fulfilled, this is a proper or fitting way that the sins of the world would be atoned for through only one way, and that is a suffering Savior. And so we've argued that the atonement was predestined, that it was predicted, it was proper. But there still remains kind of a controversial question here uh, in this passage. Go back to the end of verse 46 again and read what Jesus prays here when he cries out. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everybody look up here. If Jesus, as God in the flesh, knows the predestined proper plan of God in this moment, is it not odd that Jesus seems to be questioning the Father in his prayer? And so the answer to that, Pastor David Platt gives the following explanation. that Jesus' cry on the cross was a cry of physical agony, spiritual anguish, and relational alienation. Jesus is in pain like no one had ever faced in all facets. He's experiencing the wrath of God in this moment, and that certainty comes with deep spiritual anguish as he bears the full weight of sin's humanity in this very moment. There is no other example, there's no parallel where we can look at this moment, what's taking place physically, what's taking place relationally between Jesus and the Father. Go, oh, it's, it's kind of like this. What's, you know how you felt when, when your girlfriend broke up with you? Listen, it's nothing like that. Jesus is doing what Galatians 3 says. But it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so Jesus is not questioning the Father's predestined plan. He's crying out to God in the worst moment in anyone's life in all of human history. And while this is playing out, do not gloss over this observational detail of the text. I think it's more descriptive than prescriptive. But, but look at this. Now listen, you had some hard times in your life when you've been really squeezed and some things have come out of you that you're not proud of, right? You ever been in a pastor's office and fed, said, I just feel like God is beep on me, right? And here's Jesus bearing the weight of all of humanity. Squeezed to the point that no one can relate to this. And what comes out of his mouth is Scripture. Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, are the exact words of Psalm 22.1 that we just looked at. Jesus' very last prayer that's recorded in Scripture goes this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Guess what? That's an exact quotation verbatim of Psalm 35, 31.5. And so it may be said of us that the word of God is so inside of us that when life squeezes us hard, what comes out of us is the word of God just like it did the Son of God. And friends, do not miss the magnitude of this moment. This is not some arbitrary death. 
That this is not just a man dying a couple thousand years ago in some obscure location. Listen, this is the linchpin of all of human history. This is the story of our redemption. This is God giving up his son, causing him to suffer, causing him to experience separation so that the sins of the whole world would be born on him so that we might be declared righteous. To use the point again, to restate it, Jesus is being forsaken here so that you and I would never have to be. And if you're here and you already know Christ, listen, I hope this stirs your affections for Jesus even more. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, here's my question, what are you waiting for? No one has ever loved you like this. Listen to Romans 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him for if while we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life does it get any better than this the answer is resounding no and so listen quit looking for love in all the wrong places and ye who are weary come home amen That was the little hymn medley that I just put together, and Jesus is well pleased. Amen? (laughs) And so that's the meat and potatoes of the theology of the atonement played out in the final prayer of Jesus. Now, raise your hand if you like dessert. Right? All right, so I'm going to give you some. So here's the question. So we've answered the what, what is the atonement, what did it accomplish, those kinds of things. But listen, in every single sermon, you know what you should do as well? You should answer this question, so what? Like, hey, all that's true, and we say yes and amen, and we learn some things, and, but so what? How does this make a difference, the theology of the atonement, make a difference in the real life that you and I are living? And so let me show you three ways it makes a real difference. Number one, you don't have to perform Jesus perfectly performed the task God required because you could not. Your standing before God is not based upon something you can do. It's based upon what Jesus has already done on your behalf. The message of the law was due. The message of the gospel is done. Both your standing and your sure footing before God is based on Jesus' performance, not yours. Now, is that good news or not? You don't have to perform. Second truth is because the theology of the atonement is this, not only do you not have to perform to please God, you don't have to be perfect. If you've ever wondered or had someone ask you, maybe you're here this morning, you're kind of checking out Christianity, exploring that, and maybe you're here because someone offered to you know, buy you lunch if you went to church, and now you realize that's oh, kind of shady, it was a bait and switch, right? Maybe, I don't know why you're here, but if you're here and you're exploring faith in Christ, listen, number one, we're glad you're here, but, but my guess is this, according to cultural surveys, is the most common belief is that, that good people go to heaven, and the question is this, how, how good do you have to be? And the answer to that question is this. 
you've got to be perfect. And that's the bad news. Listen, even the cutest baby in the nursery this morning is nothing more than a little sinner. Amen? I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. Wouldn't you like to be a sinner too? That's all of us. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. So, so here's the spiritual reality. Is none of us are righteous. All of us are sinful. But the standard of heaven is perfection. That's the bad news, but the good news is this. It's in the verse that we already shared earlier. For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then, in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. And what he's describing there in big theological terms is called the doctrine of imputation. Imputation is it's just a fancy word. It's an accounting term is what it really is. And it means that his righteousness was credited to our account. And so if perfection's required, then guess what? You and I are in trouble. But here's the good news of the gospel. We could never be perfect, but Jesus was. And his righteousness is credited us for all of eternity, praise God. And so you don't have to perform You don't have to be perfect, but here's the third truth. You don't have to give in to despair. Look at verse 51 again. Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 says this, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, just a little little Bible trivia nerding out right here, all right? The temple curtain was so tall that no man could have reached the top of it. That if a man was going to tear the temple curtain, he would have had to grab it at the bottom. Listen, in the thickness of it, look at the details of how that was all constructed, no man would have been strong. I mean, maybe me, but none of you, all right? Don't hate, celebrate, amen, all right? But when it says it was torn from top to bottom where no man could reach, what it's signifying is that God himself tore open the temple and signified once and for all that, hey, you've got access now. You don't have to have a priest to mediate on your behalf because Jesus Christ is our great high priest. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen? And he says, Access is now available, and you can approach the throne of grace boldly in your time of need, is what Hebrews says. And that doesn't just have benefits in the afterlife. That has benefits in the real life that you're living right now. That is a life-changing truth. Remember the question we opened up with? You ever felt forsaken? You ever felt like God's abandoned you? You ever felt like God's been distant or disinterested? You ever felt like God's been late? Let me quote Paul Tripp again from that same devotional from the same day this Thursday. I quote. He says, if you're God's child, you're not alone. Glorious grace has connected you to the one whose power and love Don't shift with the times. 
Grace has connected you and me to the one who's the ultimate dwelling place, the ultimate place to which we can run. This means that I'm never left just to my own resources. I'm never left to figure out and deal with life on my own. As God's child, I must never see myself as poor or forsaken. I must never buy into the lie that I have no recourse or hope. I must never think that my life is ruled by my difficulty. I must never give way to despondency or despair. Grace has opened up the door of hope and refuge to me by connecting me to the one who is eternal and rules all circumstance and relationship that would cause me to feel alone. You are never alone, never forsaken again because Jesus was on your behalf. I love what he says there. Grace has opened the door of hope and refuge to me. What was the open door? The curtain has been torn. And you and I, not because we're righteous, not because we're worthy, but because the righteousness of Christ, because Christ is mediating, interceding on our behalf, we can approach God's throne of grace boldly and obtain mercy, is what the Bible says. Not because of what I've done, but all because of what Christ has done. Grace has opened the door of hope, and grace has a name. It's Jesus Christ. The one who was forsaken so that you would never have to be. And if you don't know him personally, I can't think of a better day to meet him than today. Would you bow your heads this morning? I want to ask you two questions. Number one, do you know Jesus Christ in a real, personal way? I'm not asking you if you believe in God. I'm not asking if you believe Jesus was a great teacher or moral example. I'm not asking if you even agree that he died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day. I'm asking you this. Has there ever been a time and a place or a season in your life where you realized that your sins had separated you from a holy God? That when you compared your life against the life of Jesus Christ, the only honest thing you could do is confess that you've fallen short of God's standard. And in that moment... You realize that Jesus Christ was your only hope of being reconciled to a holy God. And so you confessed your sins, just means you agree. You repented of those sins, or had a desire to turn from them, and you accepted Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And so let me ask you again. Has there been a time and a place or a season in your life where you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been saved? If the answer is no, but I'm not sure, then listen, here's the good news of grace. Right where you're at, right in your seat this morning, you can pray and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you just pray right now and confess your sins before God? Would you declare that You believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose the third day. And by faith, 
Would you receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Would you do that right now? If you've never done that or you're unsure. For those of you who are saved, I, ju I just want to ask you this question. You don't have to raise your hands or do anything like that today. But I wonder this. I wonder how many people are walking through a season where God feels distant or disinterested or maybe even that God is, God is punishing you. If you're battling that discouragement, you're battling that unbelief right now would you just say Lord I believe that Lord no longer am I going to doubt in the dark what you've revealed in the light I believe that Jesus Christ was forsaken and because that is true I never will be despite how I feel would you declare that right now would you just say Lord I believe I'm choosing faith over doubt Father, I pray this morning for everybody in the room who's walking through a season of doubt, doubting that you care, doubting if you really are for them, doubting if, in fact, the Bible is true, that you don't punish us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God, I pray that today, that they leave here today on sure footing, that the atonement of Jesus Christ teaches us that despite how we feel, we will never be forsaken because Jesus was. That God, not only was the curtain veil torn, it's still open, praise God. And so God, let us not just live and say amen to these truths. God, let them change us from the inside out. And God, we're grateful for a Savior who did what He did so that we would never have to experience what we should. It's in His name we pray. Amen.